Yeah, for those of you, uh, for those of you who, who, I only stayed up through the first half of the game, went to bed thinking, we might win. You know, we were up by, we were up by 27, but as Brett uh, Wynn said, you know, against, against Golden State, you think, well, maybe, maybe. Um, and, uh, but for those of you that stayed up all the way to the end, I don't even know how you went to sleep after that game. So well done for being here this morning if you're here. Um, I said to, to my son and some other friends, you know, Steph Curry should have learned from uh, years ago, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, Blake Griffin and the L.A. Clippers in the playoffs decided to mock Memphis a little bit, and it cost them. So Steph Curry should have learned yesterday morning in his comments that it, would, uh, that it was cost him. It is good. I, I love the pride that this city has. love for you to turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 John chapter 4 um, as we look at our last, uh, last lesson of what it means to be men after God's own heart. And again, uh, for Lon and Jerry and uh, a lot of the leadership here, the staff, the kitchen staff, I'm so grateful for everybody that uh, had a part in putting this together. And the blessing that I said last week for you all to encourage me and Barton and George to really dive into these things. You and your faithfulness has caused the Lord's work of sanctification in us personally. And so we're grateful for that. So we said last week that the reason we looked at these last three topics, um, trust, hope, and love, or you could have said faith, hope, and love, is because that is the, uh, the triad that was often talked about in the Christian, early Christian church that was at the very center of what it meant to be a believer. And when Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 13, he said, hey, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. In other words, all the spiritual gifts, all those things are important, but these are the things that are eternal. These are the things that are core to who we are as believers and certainly core to who we are as God's men. And then he said, but the greatest of these is love. And so we end on that this morning. There are a lot of uh, <laughs> moments that the Lord has used in my life uh, to humble me. But one of them centers around this, defin- uh, this question of what, what is love. I was about, um, I guess, two months away from getting married uh, to my wife, Lynn. And I was this single guy working as a youth pastor in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And I had arranged, at the church that I was uh, working, I had arranged for um, one of my college professors, Dr. Henry Krabendam, to come and speak at a kind of a weekend conference for men at our, at our church. Uh, Dr. Henry Krabendam, or Dr. K as we called him, uh, some of you may be familiar with him. He's written some commentaries. Uh, this guy is this almost seven foot tall Dutchman um, who has this thick Dutch accent and is brilliant. Um, who you, you never, when I go up to visit Covenant, I actually try to, try to avoid him because if he finds me, uh, he tells me, hey, we need to spend time together. Uh, so I'll meet you tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. in my office for prayer. Like, that's always what he does. I mean, this guy is just a, a godly, godly man. And uh, appreciated everything that, that he taught me. And I remember uh, this time at this conference, I was so excited and so proud as a young college graduate to have Dr. K come to my church. I was proud that he was there. And we had this men's breakfast, and we were talking about what it meant to be men of God. And uh, Dr. K said, uh, Brothers, brothers, uh, can somebody tell me? What is the definition of love? And everybody just kind of sat there. You know, I kind of looked around. I was waiting for somebody to say something. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll say something. You know, I guess they're not confident enough to say anything. And I raised my hand. And uh, Dr. K said, Mr. Erickson, what is the definition of love? 
I said, uh, I think, and I was really proud of my answer. I said, it's wanting God's best for that other person. And he goes, and I knew I was in trouble when he said this. He goes, oh, Mr. Erickson. <laughs> if that is true, that you want God's best for the other person, then why are you marrying Lynn? <laughs> and instantly, you know, everybody in the room laughed. I'm like, I went from pride to humbled right there. He wasn't just making a joke. He actually had a point. He was trying to show us, and he did show us that day, that the love that is talked about in Scripture regarding what we are to give as men of God is something that is deep and powerful and not simply something as wanting God's best for the other person. It is that, but it's much more powerful and much deeper as it's described. We're called to this deep love. There's three words, three Greek words that are used for the word English word love in the New Testament. One of them is eros, for where we get the word erotic, and that just means the physical expression of love. And the other one is phileo, where the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, the idea that, that this kind of a, a friendship. And the word that is often used, the third one, and the one that's used here in the passage we have is agape. And it means sacrificial love. And I began uh, to understand pretty rapidly within two months um, that Dr. K was right, that there was something more than just wanting God's best for Lynn. There was something more that was required of me in order to love her. And it actually took me, well, it's still taking me 32 years to really learn this. But I remember even 10 years ago, so I'd been married for 22 years, when I discovered something that I had messed up even in thinking about God's sacrificial love just for my wife. And that was this. I was actually teaching on Ephesians chapter 5. Remember Ephesians chapter 5 says, Husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And for most of my marriage, I thought, I get that. I am supposed, when, when a sacrifice arises, I'm supposed to step up and take it. That's what's supposed to happen in my marriage. When the sacrifice arises, I step up and take it. And I realized that day 10 years ago, I've missed this. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't wait for a sacrifice to arise to come after us. He actually figured out what the sacrifice would be in order for us to be saved. If I'm to love my wife like Christ loved the church, I'm not to wait passively, oh, there's a sacrifice, I'll take it. But for me to actively seek to figure out how I can sacrifice for her. It was both convicting and not my favorite day to go, oh, wow, I got a lot to do here. Brothers, it's that kind of agape love that God is calling us to, even in our relationship within the church and our relationship outside the church, that we are to be men who are called to that kind of love. And I don't know if it's been disturbing to you, but probably the thing of all the things over the last two years that have been disturbing, and there's just a lot. I was with a group last night. Uh, over at dinner, over to dinner at someone's house, and we were just laughing at all the craziness of the last two years and the pandemic, and <laughs> still trying to figure out why there was a run on toilet paper. We came to figure that out, you know, just all this stuff that that was uh, frustrating over the last two years. But I would say that for me, and maybe it's for you too, the most frustrating thing, most frustrating thing over the last two or disturbing thing, was the lack of love within the body of Christ. In fact, yesterday morning I was having breakfast with a guy who pastors a small church in Arkansas. 
And even there, even in that small church, they were facing division. They had, they had, <laughs> they only have like 50 members and 10 of them decided to go do, do their own church. And I was like, wow, I'm hearing that everywhere. From, from John Piper's church to David Platt's church to this small church in Arkansas, a failure for us to really love each other. You know, it's interesting. Maybe some of you remember, we, five years ago, taught through, in amen, taught through 1 John. And actually, five years ago, I taught this particular passage in that series. And that morning, that morning, Jerry Roberts prayed for me and for us. He was the one praying. And that morning, in Jerry Roberts' prayer, he said this. He said, a lot of people, God, are afraid and they're not loving. There in the passage we're going to read, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And Jerry Roberts prayed, Lord, a lot of people are afraid and they're not loving. And then even uh, a couple weeks ago, I was in Washington, D.C. with our fellows and this pastor stood up and said he was talking about uh, just encouraging these young people uh, college and fellows graduates to get involved in the church and to commit to the church and he just reminded them he said hey in the church in the church there is no us and them there's only an us in the church there is no us and them there's only an us and it's in that context in that background that I call us to look at these verses so follow along with me as I read first John chapter 4 Verses 7 through 21. The Apostle John writes this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he is given of of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God... God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is the love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some context for us before we dive into these five things that I want us to see here this morning. Just so, because we haven't been studying 1 John, so I want to make sure we, we get what we're, what we're reading here. This context 
The context of 1 John is a lot about love. In fact, he, he, gives, he starts this, this discussion in chapter 2 when he talks about our commandment from Christ to have love for, another, for each other. And then he also talks about it, picks it up again in chapter 3 when he says we need to have love, he says, for the brothers. But these verses right here are the very crescendo, the very, the very pinnacle of John's argument about uh, what he's trying to get across regarding Love. Now, the theme of First John, not the theme of First John, but the, the purpose of First John is not simply that we need to love each other. That is, a, that is a big point John is making. But John does here in First John what he does in the Gospel of John, and that is he just straight up tells us what I've written about. So if you turn the page to chapter 5, verse 13... Uh, John, does, John does this in his gospel, which is great. He just tells us, hey, this is, at the end of his gospel, he says, hey, this is why I wrote this. And here, in John chapter five, 1 John 5, verse 13, John just tells us, I write these things to you who believe. So now he's writing, in his gospel, he's writing to those who didn't believe that they might believe. Here he's saying, I'm writing to believers. I'm writing to believers. I'm writing to those who believe in the name, in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So the point of uh, John's epistle, first epistle, is assurance. That we might have assurance as believers that we are connected to Christ. That's the point he's making. So he brings this discussion about love in the context of assurance. I want you to know that you belong to God. I want you to have assurance. And as I've already said, this is all about agape love. This is all about that sacrificial love. And so, brothers, we are being called to love sacrificially without fear. To love sacrificially without fear. To love each other in this room sacrificially without fear. To love our family without fear. To love our neighbors without fear. To love our wives without fear. And we need to look at what that means because again, like Jerry Roberts prayed five years ago, there's a lot of people afraid. And so they're not loving. So how do we change that? Let's see here what God has for us in the Word. First of all, I want us to see, and I wish I'd put this. I put on your notes, we are born in love. And I put in my notes, I wish I, it was too late. She'd already printed them off, and I didn't want to ruin more trees. Uh, so I didn't change it. But I really wish I'd said, God's men are born in love. In fact, I wish it was God's men are in front of every phrase here. So God's men are born in love. It says there in verses 7 and 8, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. What, Paul, what John does here is he picks up the words that he received from Christ that we see in his gospel, John chapter 3, when Christ is talking to Nicodemus and he talks to Nicodemus about being born again. He describes salvation as being born again from God. You actually, you were created and stamped with the image of God, but now as sinful creatures we have to be born again or be made new creations in Christ as Paul talks about. And so he's using that word here. But the main point he's making is that God is love. So we are born from God. And God is, he says it, God is love. And what is the point he's making here? That it's God's nature. That it's the nature of God to love. It's, it, it's at his very core. It's who he is. Now God is also truth. God is also light. So we don't divorce those things. In other words, we can't do what the world does sometimes. We can say God is love. The world then wants to turn around and say love is God. 
So whatever is love, whatever I think is love, that becomes something that is, that is awesome. I can define what love is. Or as the phrase goes and has gone for the last five, six, seven years, people say, well, love is love, is love, is love. And I'm like, no, God is love. God defines what love is. We don't define what love is. But it is in his very nature. And because it's his very nature, then we understand what love is because it comes from God. And so, brothers, we were born in that, in that, that vein, in that direction, in love. We were, we were born from God in love, and we are to reflect our Heavenly Father. I saw, um, I saw a picture of a, a friend of mine's um, son just turned one years old. And often, you know, I, you know I, maybe, maybe I'm just terrible at this, but I'm, maybe it's just a, maybe some of you are good at it. I'm not going to, people, like the baby's born, it's like the first week, you know, and you go see the baby in the hospital, and invariably, you know, somebody says, oh, they look just like their mom, they look just like their dad. And I'm like, I don't think so. I think they look like an alien right now. Like, I don't think a newborn, <laughs> I can't. I, but at one years old, I'm like, okay, yeah, I can see it. And I remember looking at this picture this week of their one-year-old, and I'm like, oh, wow. This guy totally has his dad's eyes. Like, it's like a, it's like a little miniature dad. That's what he is right here. That's what we are called to do, brothers, is to reflect our Heavenly Father. That's what's being said here. When people see you and me, they're supposed to see in us the love of our Father and go, oh, that guy, that guy looks just like his dad, just like his heavenly father. See, we're born into that. God's nature is love. And if we are those who are born of God, then it would make sense that we would reflect the nature of our heavenly father. God's men are born in love. Secondly, God's men are secured in love. John goes on to talk about the demonstration of love that comes through Christ. And he says, he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And I've said this to you before, oftentimes of 27 years of youth ministry, um, we get to a word like that in the, in the Bible, propitiation. And invariably I have some, you know, well-meaning guy who loves Jesus, girl who loves Jesus, who's a freshman in high school, sophomore in high school, comes up to me and just says, yeah, that was great, Todd. I just wish, they, I just wish the Bible would use words like common like words, like propitiation. I don't know what that means. Like we just need to give us, a, what's the simple word for propitiation? And I learned long ago, no, 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 let's not do that. Let's not shrink down the language, right? We're already dealing with a God who's so far above us, whose, whose capacity, uh, you know, for the, the, the knowledge of God and all that is so far beyond us, it's greater than, you know, than trying to explain how a computer works to a two-year-old, right? And you, so expanding the language, our language, our vocabulary actually helps us understand God. So instead of finding a more simple word for propitiation, let's, let's just learn the word propitiation because <laughs> it's a good word. Propitiation means at its core, the turning away of the wrath of God by the offering of a sacrifice, and in, that do, in doing so, 
it then causes the favor of God to be on another person. So propitiation is a word that means that Christ has offered himself for the wrath of God that we deserved in order that we might receive the favor of God. Or as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin, that's Christ, to be sin for us, that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. So all the wrath of God, everything about, about uh, us deserved God's wrath. And Christ has paid that price in order that we might have the favor. And when Christ did that, he said, it is finished. And as uh, J.I. Packer said, I just saw this quote uh, the other day. The J.I. Packer said, isn't it, uh, isn't it great to know that at every point, the love that God has for you is based on the previous knowledge of everything you've done wrong. <laughs> he knows because it's all been paid for in Christ. And so therefore, brothers, we are actually secured in him. The point John is making here is you have assurance because Christ has done this. You can be sure that God loves you. And we talked about it last week. That's, that what's, that's what secures our hope. That's why we can say I have a confident expectation of a reality that I haven't fully experienced because it has been secured for me. It's safe. It cannot be touched. And even better, and you've heard me say this, even better, the love of God is not just some theological principle that you and I have to discover in Scripture. No, the love of God demonstrated in Christ is an actual fact of history. You don't have to sit around and wonder, does God love me? And sometimes we do that, don't we? I just wonder, I, I've, I've been terrible this week. I've been terrible this year. I just wonder if God loves me. You don't need to wonder. <laughs> you don't need to wonder, because you know what? There was a place, a hill outside of Jerusalem. And there was a time. And there was a, there was a man who was, who was fully God and fully man, and there was a cross, and it actually happened. And you can point to that fact of history when you're wondering, when you're doubting, when Satan comes after you and says, I don't know if God can love you. You can say, yeah, left up to myself, I don't know either. But I can point to that cross and that place and say, I know, I know he loves me. I know I'm secure. He is the propitiation. And he said, it is finished, and he secured it for me. And that's why, and that's why Paul can write, you are dearly loved sons of God. And he can say it with confidence. And I can say that too, brothers, this morning. You, if you put your faith in Christ, you, today, right now, are dearly loved sons of God. It's secured. You've been secured in love. Thirdly, God's men are completed in love. They're completed in love. There in verses 11 and 12, it talks about this abiding, but it says God loves abiding, excuse me, God's, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. He also uses that, that word, that term perfected in us two other times, verse 17 and following, perfected in us. What it means is not that it's perfect, it means that it's completed. 
That'd be a better translation there is completed in us. His love is completed in us. And I want you to notice the way it's being said there. This is something God is working in us, not something we're working for ourselves. You're not having to complete yourself in God's love. No, God is working to complete you in his love. Now, we participate in it. It says if we abide in him, his love is completed in us. So we get the privilege of participating in our sanctification. But be sure of this. It is God who's working. He's going to make it happen. It's guaranteed to happen. I heard the greatest illustration of this the other day. Um, I know now we're all used to, to using some form of a GPS in our car, whether it's on the dashboard of our car or on our phone. We're all used to doing that. And this, I, I don't know if this happens to you. My kids tell me, Dad, just trust, trust the GPS. Trust Waze, trust Google Maps. And sometimes I'm looking, I'm like, I just don't trust it, right? Like I look at the route, and I'm thinking, that's not the normal way I go to this person's house. I think I need to go, this is the way, and this has got me going through this little neighborhood and doing this little thing, and I don't know about that. Or I've been on the highway, and all of a sudden it's like, Okay, they're going to take me off the highway and take me around and do this and go over here. And I'm thinking, that doesn't make any sense to me. Everything seems fine. Everything seems fine. And I'll make the stupid move of just being like, nah, I'm just going to go straight here. I think this is the way to go. And of course, invariably, instead of it taking me 10 minutes on the detour, it takes me 30 minutes because some, you know, truck is jackknifed on the highway and I'm now stuck because I didn't follow the GPS, right? But isn't it interesting? Even when I take a wrong turn because I'm determined, ah, I need, to, I need to go this way. I'm not sure I need to go that way. What does the GPS do every time? It reroutes me, doesn't it? Every time, it just reroutes me. <laughs> it's going to get me there. And oftentimes, I don't take the turn and it reroutes me to the next turn. I'm like, I don't want to take that one either. And it just keeps re- But the whole point of the GPS is, hey, dummy, I'm going to get you there the fastest way if you just would take it. I think of that with the book of Jonah. What happened? God says, I need you to go to Nineveh, Jonah. Jonah's like, yeah, I don't think, think I want to go the other way. I'm going to go to Tarshish. And what, what did God do? He just rerouted him with a whale. So I'm going to get you there. I'm going to get you there. It's just going to be a little bit longer than, than, than you had hoped and maybe a little smellier and messier. And see, in our sanctification, what's happening in our completion and love, brothers, we do get to participate. And God is saying in his word, hey, turn this way. Hey, go that way. And sometimes we obey and go, yeah. And we're like, oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for leading me this direction. And then every once in a while, or maybe too many times, we're like, ah, I think it'd be better to do this. God doesn't leave us. He reroutes us. He's like, no, I'm going to get you back to that place. I'm going to complete you. And see, you and I can be secure in the love of Christ, knowing that Christ's, love for a, Christ's demonstration of love on the cross secures us in that. And then we can be secure in knowing that he's going to complete the work in us. And that's why Paul writes that in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Like he's going to finish the work and get you home, even if you, even if you continue to go, I'm not sure that's the right way. He'll get you there. 
He'll get you there. We're going to be completed in love. Number four, God's men abide through love. God's men abide through love. Verses 13 through 16, John writes, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. Notice spirit there is capital. This is capital. This is the capitalized. This is the Holy Spirit. He has given us, and I love the way it's written there, of his spirit. Sometimes we forget the Holy Spirit is God dwelling in us. It is God's spirit. And we also forget that the same Holy Spirit that descended upon Christ in his baptism is the exact same Holy Spirit that descended upon you in your conversion. There aren't two spirits, two Holy Spirits. There's one Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God that dwelled in Christ dwells in you. And as we said last week, it's a, a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And here, it's connected to love. Connected to how we love and how we abide. And you could say, in fact, I thought about even crafting the, the passage this way. That, that God the Father is the source of our love because he is in his nature love. That Christ is the demonstration of love because of the cross. And that the Holy Spirit is the deposit of Christ's love in our lives. That now we have become united with Christ. And so Christ's Spirit is working in us. And you see in verse 15, it's doing, well, it's doing a couple things. Verse 15 and 16. Verse 15, the work of the Holy Spirit in us is causing us to believe the truth of the gospel. And you remember, we've said this many times. You and I didn't come to know Christ because we're smarter than the next guy. We're not Christians because we figured it out and the guy that's not a believer, he just isn't smart enough to figure it out. We know that, don't we? We know that's not what happened. We know that unless Christ had opened, unless the Holy Spirit had regenerated our hearts and opened our eyes, we would have never seen it. And it is the Holy Spirit that has done that, that has that has brought us alive. It says in, in Ephesians that we were dead in our trespasses and sin and that we were made alive in Christ. So it is the Holy Spirit that's helping us believe the truth of the gospel. And it is, in verse 16, the Holy Spirit that is helping us believe the love of God for us. So the Holy Spirit is working that in us. And it's great to know that, you know, yes, we're abiding, we want to abide in God but because of the Holy Spirit in us, God is abiding in us. That there is that, we talked about last week, the mystical union we have with Christ. That you are united with Christ. That he is actually, that spirit is, is in you, is made his dwelling in you. We need to talk a, a little bit about abiding because we don't use that word very often. So what is abiding? What does it mean to abide and really, John picks this up in chapter 15 of his gospel and is helpful there for a couple, giving us a couple uh, things to understand about abiding in God. And then here also in his epistle. And in John chapter 15, I think the first thing we learn about what it means to abide is that it's God's sovereign grace that causes us to abide. Because you remember in John chapter 15, Christ talks about himself as being the true vine and we are the branches. And that the gardener is God himself. And God has grafted us into the vine. And so that's the connection that we have. And it's God that's done that. That's so reassuring. That goes back to the assurance that John wants us to have. You've been grafted into Christ. 
This is the, the work of the gardener. So the sovereign grace of God is causing us to abide. And then in John chapter 15, uh, John writes um, that if you abide in my... Jesus says, John writes about Jesus saying, Jesus says, if you abide in my words and obey my words, then my love abides in you. And so it's God's sovereign grace grafting us in. And then secondly, abiding has to do with obeying God's word. Right? So that's our participation. The sovereign, sovereignty of God has grafted us into Christ. And how do we stay abiding? We stay abiding by following his word, by obeying his word. And he says, if, if, if you obey my word, then you abide my love as I abide my Father's love. And then he says, I tell you this so that my joy, the joy of Christ, may be in you and your joy may be complete. And that's why we abide and that's why we obey God's word. And then here in John chapter, 1 John 4, the third part about uh, abiding, first is God's grace, second is our obedience to the word, and the third is our resting our lives on the love of Christ. I'm resting my life on that. Mitchell Moore, who was a pastor here years ago, uh, he was just back a few weeks ago to speak uh, to our crossroads. He's a dear friend um, and was a very encouraging pastor for us here. And I used to, I don't know if you remember this, he used to always talk about leaning into the Lord or leaning into the grace of God. And I thought it was such a great word picture for us. The idea that we would, that we rest ourselves completely that we would lean ourselves completely against the Lord Jesus, against his love. And here in John chapter, 1 John 4, it's saying, rest your whole life in the love of God. Whatever it is that's causing you worry, that's causing you stress, that's causing you frustration, that's causing you anger, would you just take it to the Lord and rest in his love for you? That's what it means to abide. God's men abiding through love. And then finally this morning, brothers, God's men are empowered to love. Empowered to love. Do you see what John has done here? The first things have to do with what God is doing to us. God's nature, the source of our love, He is the source of it. It's coming from Him. God's demonstration, Christ has secured us in love. That's an act of God. And then we see that we're being completed in love because He's doing this work. He's carrying it on to completion. And now we begin to see our participation when we're abiding. He's abiding in us, and we are also abiding in him. And now, because of all those things, you and I are empowered to love. And so in verses 17 through 21, we see there this phrase, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And then he goes on and says, We love because he first loved us. And so this is what's being said. We, men of God, we do not fear, we love. We do not fear, men of God, do not fear. Men of God, love. What are we not fearing? What is he mentioning? Well, here in this specific passage, it's saying we don't fear judgment. We don't fear the final judgment. We're secured in the love of Christ. We know that he's the propitiation for our sins. We are not afraid to stand before God in the final judgment. And we're going to get up there. Whether Christ returns or you die before he returns. And if you have to answer a question, you know what the answer can't be? The answer can't be, 
I'm a pretty, I was a pretty good guy. I was a really great churchman. I went to Amen for 22 years. I uh, sat in the front of Amen. I, uh, I served in my church. I'm an elder. I'm a deacon. I, that, is, that, that doesn't mean anything. The only answer is, I got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Like, that's it. That's, that's why I'm here. Or as Alistair Begg said, I don't know if you've seen this before, I love it. He talks about the man on the cross next to Jesus who said, uh, looked at Jesus after mocking Jesus for a while, turned to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is on the cross. And Jesus looked at the man and said, I tell you this day you'll be with me in paradise. And so as Alistair Begg says that, you know, that guy ends up, he dies on the cross and boom, he's in heaven. And maybe it's Peter. No, he wouldn't be alive yet. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's Moses. Hey, why are you here? An angel, why are you here? Uh, can, you, can you tell me a little bit about uh, a justification by faith? The guy on the cross is like, uh, no. <laughs> uh, well, the, the Bible. Can you, you, know, you, you, you understand all your Bible. You've read your Bible. I I've never seen a Bible. Uh, uh, well, can you tell me about... Um, the gospel, the way of salvation. Uh, I, well, why are you here? And that guy's going to say, because the man on the middle cross said I could come. And you and I, brothers, that's what we're going to say. <laughs> we're going to say when we get to heaven, the man, Christ, on the middle cross said I could come. And that's our, that's, our, that's our answer. So we don't fear the judgment because that's, that's the basis for it. We don't fear death either. We don't feel fear an earthly death. We're not afraid of that. I mean, I, you might be afraid of pain. I'm afraid of pain. <laughs> but I would say I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of death. So we don't fear. We don't fear the judgment. We don't fear death. And because of that, you know what, brothers, you know what we're not looking for <laughs> as we live this life? You know what we're not looking? We're not looking for the approval of men. We don't have to. You don't have to go out today and live your life looking for the approval of men. You don't have to. You're already approved of God. And the approval of men will do you no good when Christ returns. Will do you no good at the judgment. That's not to mean, that doesn't mean you're going to be a jerk and <laughs> you're mean to people. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you don't make your decisions based on the approval of men. You don't need to be afraid of that. You don't need to be afraid of what people think of you. You're approved of God. And brothers, you and I, we don't need to preserve our lives and we don't need to preserve our way of life. Let me say that again. We don't need to preserve our lives, and we don't need to preserve our way of life. Because we have a home, and it's not here, and it's awesome. You have a home, and you have an inheritance that cannot be touched by any disaster this world could ever bring you. And it's secure. It's unfading. It's imperishable. And it's kept in heaven for you. 
And so you, we don't need, we don't need to preserve our lives. And we don't need to preserve our way of lives. So for that, we don't have to fear. And so that means God's men do not fear. We love. We can love sacrificially. We can love fiercely. We can lay down our lives for our spouses. We can lay down our lives for our brothers. We can lay down our pride. We can lay down everything we have. We can lay down our our possessions. We can love freely and radically and sacrificially because everything we actually need has already been secured for us. We are approved of God. We are loved of God. We have a home. We have an inheritance. And you and I can walk out of this and we can live radical lives of loving people in ways that just look crazy because we're secure, because we're free. We're not walking out of these doors looking for someone to love us or affirm us. We're free of that. I shared this story five years ago. I'll close with a little bit of this. Some of us who are old enough remember that in the, that, that in the mid to late 1980s, there was an AIDS, HIV AIDS epidemic among uh, homosexual men, homosexual community. And during that season of the history of the United States, uh, they were treated as a pariah, as lepers by every part of our society. There wasn't any part of our society, Christian or unchristian, that treated these men with any kind of love whatsoever. Everybody just wanted to be away from them. Everybody was just afraid. Now, there were a handful of Christians that did something different. But I still look back on that time and I think, man, what an opportunity the church missed. I'm not talking about condoning sin that we see clearly spoken against of in Scripture. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying affirming a lifestyle that God has said will only bring sadness and destruction to people's lives. I'm not saying that. I am saying that there were men stamped with the image of God who were dying with no hope and no understanding. And the church was too too afraid to just go sit with them in the hospital room and just love them. What would have happened to the witness for Christ in this country if that has been what the church was known for in the 80s, was that kind of sacrificial, life-risking love. Well, brothers, I think we have another opportunity before us right now, this point in our culture. I think this culture and this country are being torn apart by different ideologies and thoughts that just don't make sense. As I said last week, we've all lost our minds. And it is a great temptation of those of us who know the truth, who are being accused and being, and being uh, uh, um, marginalized. I mean, we are, we are being attacked for our Christian beliefs in ways that we haven't experienced, most of us, in our entire lifetime. And even the outcry that's taken place as a, release, as a result of this leak regarding the Supreme Court decision has, has caused this wave of anger and, and accusation 
And I'll tell you, brother, everything in me wants to just put up a good argument. I mean, I just want to argue with someone and show them that they're wrong. I mean, everything in me wants to, wants to defend my position, wants to defend my way of life, wants to defend me. There's a way, because Christ has shown us, to hold to truth uncompromisingly and to love radically and sacrificially. Maybe it needs to start in our churches, in our church families. I know we disagree on stuff right now. I know sometimes those conversations feel that they're coming from some kind of visceral place in our hearts, but I'm pleading you with you, brothers. We have got to start loving each other in our churches. I'm not saying compromise truth. Don't hear me wrong. But I am saying we got to figure out how to love sacrificially and hold to truth and do both like Jesus did. And we're going to face greater and greater unless, unless God causes some revival to take place in this country. We are going to face greater and greater persecution and marginalization just for walking with Jesus. And brothers, we've got to respond with love. We've got to respond with laying down our lives. We do not fear. We love. And I believe now, now is time for fearless sacrificial love, brothers. And he's empowered us to do it. He's empowered us to do it. As my friend, my friend Doug Bradbury always says to me whenever I've seen him and we're departing ways, I say to you, you are dearly loved sons of the King of Kings. Brothers, you are dearly loved Sons of the King of Kings, now walk out those doors and live like it. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have had patience with us when we have been unloving. Father, I confess to you that even this week, my own heart has been filled with insecurity and resulting anger desire to defend myself, Father, to, to prove myself. And I know that's coming because I'm not resting in your love. Lord, I imagine for my brothers here who I do love dearly and they love me. Lord, I imagine for some of them they felt that even this week. They felt injustice. They felt anger. They have not wanted to forgive. They've not wanted to love and yet, Lord, you have been patient with us. You have loved us. You continue to love us. Even when we rebel against you and shake our fists, and even when we ignore you, even when we say we don't want anything to do with you because our actions show that, you've never quit on us, ever. You keep coming back for us. You've loved us. Father, thank you for giving us that grace for abiding in us, for, for preparing us for this time. Father, we don't feel up to the task. 
whether it's in our homes or in our neighborhoods or in our jobs or in our schools or in our city. Father, we don't, we sometimes feel very inadequate. But I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us in your love and that you would give us that freedom to love fearlessly and sacrificially that people might say that we look like our Heavenly Father. We ask all this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thanks, brothers.